0: You're listening to Pull the Thread Podcast. I'm your host, Crystal Douglas. I'm a celebrity tailor, a creative entrepreneur, and a wild Mustang tamer. I took a brother home sewing machine, I put it on a $30 Craigslist desk, and eventually built a six-figure sewing business that supports a life I love, while generating hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue each year. Now, it's hard for me even to wrap my head around those numbers, and it definitely didn't come easy, but if there's anything that I love doing, it's helping others shorten their learning curve, I'm sharing what I've learned about entrepreneurship and business building as it applies to craft-based work and opening up about what I wish I knew when I first started. I'm sharing every tool, trick, and business process I've learned from costuming celebrities, manufacturing clothing, and selling products so that you can stop questioning your skills and start profiting from your work. So you ready? Let's go. you're an astronaut, the process of getting dressed for work is a pretty labor intensive gig. You might have known that the spacesuits Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins and Neil Armstrong wore to the moon were super expensive. I mean, they cost between 100 dollars and $250,000 each. But I bet you didn't know that the seamstresses who made them came from Playtex. The success of those suits was a matter of life and death. I'd imagine that the phrase good enough was not one that they said that day about their uniform. The Apollo Omega suit actually represented years of behind-the-scenes wrestling between contractors who were all competing for NASA's affection and dollars. It was a decade of insane spending between the Kennedy's tight deadline and our rivalry with the Soviet Union. The Gemini program, it was to test spacecraft and the techniques that would be required to land on the moon. But don't forget, it was also to send someone outside to spacewalk. But see, Playtex wasn't actually NASA's first choice. In the mid-60s, the main two names in spacesuit manufacturer were David Clark Company, based out of Massachusetts, and Hamilton Standard, who worked for B.F. Goodrich. Now, Hamilton Standard subcontracted out the work. They hired a tiny company with no more than 50 employees called the International Latex Company. Their ex- area of expertise was latex molding, um, so they made bras, underwear, girdles. They go by the name Playtex. So NASA gets wind of it, and they invite Playtex to pull up a seat at the table and offer up their own design for the spacesuit, much to the disgust of the other two firms. See, Hamilton Standard was super annoyed by being trumped by another smaller firm, so they tried to create a duplicate suit of their own that would be better than Playtex's, basically just trying to undercut their own subcontractor. But see, ILC's prototype was still better and more innovative. Hamilton Standard tried to put together an internal team. It was called the Tiger Team, so that they could build a better suit than ILCs. Um, And funny enough, on December 21st, there was a memo that circulated at NASA, and it just said, Tiger Suit, a bust. Forget it. Thing is, from what I've read, uh, NASA was actually annoyed that Playtex's suit was better. Um, It was a total culture clash. NASA was made up of engineers and scientists, so they love precise technical drawings and scientific explanations and detailed descriptions of the origins of every component in every item that would be sent into space down to the tiniest little piece of thread. You ever had a client like that? I have. (laughs) Playtex, on the other hand, had a culture that was scrappy and folksy, and they relied on teams of experienced seamstresses who read patterns, not manuals, and they privileged craft and grit over technical qualification. For example, their VP of engineering during the Apollo project was a TV repairman when he was recruited by ILC. Playtex became the dark horse, and NASA didn't love that idea, but they were outpacing both Hamilton Standard and David Clark. But Playtex just couldn't seem to work alongside Hamilton Standard as a subcontractor and get that agreement, so NASA inevitably ended up giving Playtex six weeks to prepare a prototype instead of being folded in with Hamilton Standard as their subcontractor. So the three suits, one was from David Clark, and they called it Suit B, One was from Hamilton Standard and B.F. Goodrich, and that was suit C. And then the third from Playtex, and that's suit A. And all three suits were submitted to 22 tests in Houston on July 1st, 1965. The ILC soft suit won 12 of the 22 tests. The head of NASA crew systems actually told his boss the ILC suit is in first place. There is no second place. The A7L Omega suit was a lot more like making girdles and bras than anyone at NASA wanted to admit. The space suit inherited some of Playtex's top tier technologies that we still use today, like nylon tricot, which is the net mesh embedded in the rubber so that it prevents from ballooning. It's actually the exact same sheer uh, fabric that we use on the inside of Playtex bras. You can still look at it in stores today. Um, Every space suit had a layer of fluffy girdle liner after the astronauts were complaining that they were uncomfortable and that the rubber was chafing against their sensitive skin. And this is probably the closest we've ever come, ladies, to men understanding our undergarment woes. But in the end, every Omega suit worn to the moon used about 4,000 pieces of fabric and about 21 layers of material. Teflon-coated beta cloth, uh, Mylar and Dacron, Nomex, which we now use in staging materials and capped it, Each material would add up to become what NASA called the one-person spacecraft. One of the seamstresses on this project was Eleanor Foraker. She was pulled from Playtex's diaper assembly line in 64 to work on the Apollo project. There are so many stories about just how frustrated NASA was with all of seamstresses like Eleanor and their inability to transfer what they knew to paper, for the NASA employees to understand. And it's so funny, like I can't help but laugh because I can so relate to this. I have had so many projects where I know what I know and I know that I can make the suit, but it's very hard sometimes for me to describe exactly what needs to happen in a fitting or to put it on paper for somebody that needs a hard explanation of of a time estimation or an explanation of exactly what needs to happen inside of the suit. And honestly, I so hope That these little old ladies hunched over their glue pots, gluing pieces of latex together in Worcester, Massachusetts, carried on these conversations about their project and their super high-maintenance client at their Friday night bingo table. Like, I really, I get a kick out of visualizing and hoping that that happened. (laughs) When I think about this story from the space history books, I can't help but have a lingering question. How is it that the best option to keep someone alive in space, where temperatures reach negative 240 degrees and like positive 300 degrees, only won half of the tests? Hypothetically, a spacesuit that only functions half as well as NASA had hoped was good enough to put a man on the moon. The fact that a NASA engineer said there's no second place when technically Playtex lost half of the test reveals a super important caveat to me as we approach business as a creative. Sometimes the best is nowhere near 100%. And I'm sure no one used the phrase good enough. But technically, if they beat the other suits in half of the tests, their suit was the best of the three. And then by default, the market said it was the best space suit on the market. Now, you might not be trying to send somebody into space, but how do you know your sewing skills are good enough to bring to market and profit off of? If you're letting the doubt monster get in your head and you're thinking my work just isn't professional crystal, it's not good enough, I want to encourage you to remember those NASA field tests. I get asked a lot by makers if their products are good enough to sell, and I used to immediately think about what I define as good, but I've been in so many situations over the last five years, um, and even when I sold stuff on Etsy like 10 years ago. And it just resets every expectation that I have for the expectations of the market. Like in my head, like any good tailor, my mind immediately thinks up images of like cute, pretty straight top stitching and neat little buttonholes. And I think of how well the item should fit no matter what size it is. And I think of the experience as I open up the package, if I ordered it online and then like I have to stop myself, I have to catch myself because I have seen items sell for $5,000 to $10,000 and it's an unfinished garment in my eyes and yet the recipient of those garden, those garments is over the moon, like completely over the moon. And, and here's the thing too, the use case for those items is so different. What if it's for a movie set and it only needs to be viewed from, from a certain distance away, or, um, it's a temporary, it's a one-time use item. No, it doesn't need that beautiful top stitching (laughs) or no, it doesn't need to be closed up. You know, the expectation is in the eyes of the market, not in you. So one time I was in Nordstrom and, um, I was picking up something for a client and I kind of wandered into my favorite section. I am a sucker for anything free people. And so I'm kind of like just looking through, I've got some Nordstrom notes stacked up. (laughs) Um, and I picked up a top that I was like, Oh, I love this. And I looked on the inside because I'm a maker. And so I inspect every garment before I buy it. And as I flipped it upside down, like the hem, um, to look at the stitching. I was horrified, like I was shocked that this item had made it into Nordstrom. Birds nests of thread everywhere. Two of the serger thread colors didn't even match the garment. Now, it wasn't a free people's shirt, don't worry. <laughs> um, but I could clearly see that one sleeve was longer than the other, and I know that I have an eagle eye for that stuff, but still, like no quality control. The baby hem on the bottom didn't even grab the raw edge for half of the distance of the shirt. And the retail price, $89. I would never buy that horrific trash. And so I move on to another section and I'm just kind of wandering through and someone comes along behind me And picks up the exact same top. And she's ecstatic. She is so excited. And she's shuffling through all of the sizes until she finds her winner. And without even trying it on. Where she would probably notice something like an uneven sleeve. Or like crappy stitching on the inside. She marches her polyester nightmare to the register with victory. And I realize it hits me. I don't get to decide for the market. The truth is. The market is the only thing that gets to decide what's going to be profitable and successful. What if those old ladies at Playtex knew their prototype wasn't going to pass every test? Like, What if they called it a day and they wrapped up and assumed that they would only pass 12 of the 24 tests and automatically that meant that they sucked and that it wouldn't work? Imagine how the story would have gone had there been no successful prototype in the space race. Imagine if nobody stepped up and occupied that space and said, you know what? This is the best that we've got given the technology that we have at the time. Full send. Let's go. Imagine how that story would have gone. Remember, the dude said there was no second place suit. What if there wasn't a first place suit? What if NASA decided to send the suit anyway, the second best suit anyways? Like what if nobody stepped up? I just think like how different would history have been the guy's safety or um, are us winning the space race? When I first started, I dreamt of creating a brand that truly made an impact on the lives of others. Yes, even with a needle and thread. And that is such a simple trade, but I don't think that people truly understood the gravity. If you don't know history and how it pertains to a needle and thread, you won't understand the gravity and the importance of sewing. And I really hope that this story about the space race kind of strikes strikes a nerve for you because man, is it important? And I think even as we look back on 2020, take a moment and realize just how many mask makers stepped up to fill that space who stood in that space and said, you know what, my skills are good enough and I'm going to make a mask even if I don't have elastic, even if my sewing machine is garbage, I'm going to do it because it's needed and half as half as, as good as perfect is good enough. One of the many things that I got wrong in the very first days of becoming a company was thinking that I had to wait until I thought my skills were good enough before bringing them to the market. Like for years, I honed my skills. I practiced my graft and I committed myself to building this business from the ground up. And it was a labor of love. And from the very beginning, this is a journey that I would absolutely embark upon again if I had the chance And like whether I had, if I knew what I know now or not, I would absolutely start all over and do it again. And you can do the same thing. You can put your products and your services out there. You can't wait. The market gets to decide what the market wants, not you. Who are you to say that your skills aren't good enough to profit from. It's your job to pull the trigger. The magic doesn't happen until you pull the trigger and you rip the bandaid off and you face the fears of rejection and failure because the chances are your skills are plenty good enough just as they are. When I finally started saying yes and being okay with figuring it out as I go and just doing as many projects as possible, I just started saying yes and for you this year or last year, that might've been making masks. That might've been going, you know what? I kind of suck at this, but there's enough YouTube videos and enough news articles about just how important this is that I'm going to feel called and compelled to, to pushing launch. And <laughs> going, you know what? My best is good enough right now. Because like when I started, and I started saying yes to as many things as possible. I definitely sent things out that I would say by my current standard freaking sucked, to like embarrassing level. But guess what? No one chastised me or embarrassed me or fired me even. People are a lot more graceful than we give them credit for. You know what they, what they have done from what I've noticed looking back? They've encouraged me. And as I've succeeded and gotten better and better, they've cheered me on and they're, they've, they've literally just championed me because they're kind of living through you. Most people are too scared to put themselves out there. So the moment that you do, you will notice that a wave of people get in your corner and they start supporting you because they've either done it or they're too scared to. And they know just how hard it is to put yourself out there. I'm not saying put pieces out full of thready bird's nests and mismatchy sleeves, I am saying allow the market to shape your perspective rather than holding back your gifts from the world. Can I tell you a secret? None of us really know what we're doing out here. We are figuring it out as we go. Us makers are always launching and growing and adjusting. I never went to school for this. I had no idea what I was doing when I first started. I started with a pair of free thread scissors, a travel-sized ironing board that I set on my floor as I ironed dress hems because I didn't have a table, and YouTube, and that was good enough. Like, I can stand back and look at what I've built and who I've worked for, who I've had the blessing to be able to help and serve, and that travel-sized ironing board was good enough. Those crappy Fiskars were good enough. YouTube gave me everything I needed to press launch and start. I can't stress enough just how important it is that you take action and you put your handmade products out there. And if you're scared, that is okay. You have my full endorsement to lie. (laughs) Pretend you're not and hit the gas on the goal. Push through it. Take action. Because the moment that you post about your passion and you invite your friends to follow that journey... Or you launch an Etsy store and just see what the response is before you tell all your friends. Or even just book a vendor slot at a craft fair. Is the moment that you turn this from an idea into a living, breathing business opportunity. And guess what? Like God, the universe will reward that boldness. You will learn more from launching or pressing publish than you will ever learn from thinking about it and strategizing it and working on a cool logo and, and visualizing what it's going to look like when it's so awesome and it's out there in the world, but not ever pulling the trigger. And as soon as you launch, trust me, that's when it gets really, really, really fun. Like It's going to ignite new ideas in you. So if anything, if you're feeling blocked or stuck... Pull the trigger because it's going to re-inspire you. I'm telling you, you're going to be invigorated with new ideas. When I think about everyone's hesitations to make that leap and putting something out there in the world, I think about this artist sketch that I saw forever ago, and it's two people facing these giant ladders in front of them. And one person is looking at a ladder made up of like lots of little tiny steps and the task in front of him looks completely doable, even if it's a really tall ladder The person on the right, however, is facing what looks like an impossible climb. It's a ladder that is just as tall, but it has giant gaps between every ladder rung. Like every rung of the ladder is is taller than this guy's height. This is exactly how I feel. When people approach me um, who craft and they say that they're waiting to launch until all of the things are done they want to launch everything at the same time or they're waiting for it all to be perfect or their product's just not perfect enough for them to launch yet. If you wait for your logo to be perfect or you wait until you found the perfect business partner or until it feels like the economy is right or you're holding off until your branding is completely built and flawless... Or your product isn't designed and packaged for the gods yet, it's going to take you a lifetime. It will never be perfect, and that's okay. Taking imperfect action will always get you further than holding out and holding back your gifts and abilities from the world solely because you haven't perfected them yet. Because guess what? As soon as you launch, you're gonna get better clarity and you're gonna go, oh, now I know what to perfect. I thought it was this one thing. I thought it was the logo, but actually it's the product. When it comes to self-education for creative entrepreneurs, I kind of feel like it's like feeling around a room in the dark and you're kind of like trying to make out what's in the room, um, on your own (laughs) and get your bearings slowly. And I think As we approach launching and like pulling the trigger, rather than fumbling around and like slowly getting there and thinking that the room is just going to come together for you, it's like stopping at the door and flipping the lights on. That's what launching does. And sure, everything will be exposed both for you and for the rest of the world. Yep. Um, but that's okay because it'll get you over your fear of failing and your insecurities about what other people think about what you're working on and the moment that it's out there, you'll know exactly what you need to do, whether it's improve the product or the listing or the brand or the marketing. And since it's already on the market, you will have a fire lit up under you to get it done. Like you will start seeing immediate tangible tasks that you need to work on. So those big ideas like the macro stuff where you're like, I want to launch a company that's creative, that that sells a handmade product, becomes oh, wow, I need to fix that header photo on Etsy because the file type isn't right and it's grainy. Or it becomes, "Mm, I need to add SEO to the descriptions in this listing for Shopify. Like everything becomes super, super tangible and actionable rather than leaving things big, macro vague. So as we've rolled into 2021, you are getting a game plan together um, as far as like launching and creating something and putting it out in the world. Channel the old ladies at Playtex, get scrappy, be okay with getting a little folksy. It was good enough for NASA. I promise you it will be good enough for you too. I truly hope that you were able to pull um, something helpful out of this episode. Whether you have a team working for you and you might be suffering some analysis paralysis as we start this new year, um, or you're a solopreneur and your heart is bursting at the idea of selling your own handmade items. In the next episode, I'm going to let you in on five things that I wish I did when I first set up shop until next time. You've just finished an episode of pull the thread. It means the world to me that you landed here and hit play. If you got something out of this podcast, please hit that subscribe button. And if you're feeling mega generous, leave a review.